Hey there, welcome to the Cause and Effect, Effect with an A, a podcast where we talk about the human stories and lives of entrepreneurs and change makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my partner in crime, Felicia Tripp Folsom, who is the executive director of the Emerging Leaders Program um, and sits on the executive team of The Contingent. Uh, welcome to the show, Felicia. Hey, Ryan. Glad to be here. Awesome. Yeah, glad to have you here. Um, so when we met, it was May. Uh, well, actually, you started at um, Emerging Leaders in May of last year, but maybe in the interview, it was exactly a year ago in April. And I was, I've interviewed probably thousands of people in my life, but I was probably the most impressed with you of all of those people um, because of how you, I think we gave you some kind of like some homework of how you might approach um, our, like where you might take the organization as our, our fearless leader, but you came back with all of this strategic approach to data and how to, to structure it in a way to track long-term outcomes. And I kind of, you know, it was almost like you were three steps ahead of us. And I learned so much from you in that. I was just like, well, this is a no brainer. We, we have to hire you. Um, but how, you know, how'd you come up with that as a plan? And is that how you think about, um, kind of any organization that you get involved in? Like, how does, how do you work, Felicia? Um, well, Ryan, yes, it's, it's actually the way I work. Um, early in my career, I used to do work, and I really felt like I wasn't making real meaningful impact or change. And I really realized in order to make systematic change to help our most vulnerable populations, we need to really think strategically and think long term. Sorry, those are my dogs. Yeah. I apologize. Oh, it's, we're oh, in this whole new world of coronavirus, so. Yes, and so I do apologize. Those are my poodles. But I had decided um, that it needed to take more, and I've been in the nonprofit community space in Portland for two decades, and what I have really found especially working here, in order to make real change for the people I serve, I not only have to do the work, I have to explain why the work is being done in the way it's doing. I have to have a hypothesis. I have to be able to track because it's not only about outputs, but outcomes. What's the long-term outcome that I'm trying to achieve when doing the work? And that's why all the strategy work um, is important on the front end. Coming out of affordable housing, uh, I had a real belief that, that people should have their access to homeownership. Not everybody should be a homeowner. And so I spent a big part of my career in affordable housing and still to this day really focused on access. Um, because you can, the biggest gap I see in our marginalized and vulnerable communities is their inability to access, whether it's housing, healthcare, education. And so what are the, the points I'm going to have to create or be part of that change so those communities 
can understand what they can access. And that, that access point is really the differential that I see in being able to make long-term um, change. And that's why that that's why the strategic thinking is, is coming from this sort of access point. Because what I found is when we're able to help our most marginalized communities access, whether it's housing, healthcare, education, that's where the real change occurs. And so that, that's why when I was in that interview process with you and Sue, I didn't think it was good enough to say, yeah, I can do the job. It was really like, if, if I was hired for this job, this would be my approach. This is what my thinking is. These are the goals that we have to put in place. From these goals, these will be the outputs and the outcomes mm -hmm. to really serve our young people of color coming out of Oregon's colleges and universities. Yeah, yeah. And one of the, um, uh, we're all having distractions today. <laughs> um, one of the, um, okay, my distraction just, left the room so that's good uh one of the things that i've always noticed about you felicia is you have been really um clear in any meeting or any when you're at the podium speaking to audience um audiences around your own identity and the importance of identity not just from a race and gender standpoint but how um how that kind of infuses with our perspective throughout how we kind of approach uh, the world. And I know that um, your daughter who just is graduating from LaSalle High School, she is a social justice warrior and, and really um, is comfortable in her own skin and knows her own identity. And so I just, I thought it would be, I thought I'd have a lot to learn and so would our audience around why um, identity is so important for all of us um, because I feel like you're so clear on that and you have been throughout your life so I just wanted to have you expand on that um, yeah Ryan um, I think the number one way I I have to thank my parents uh, being a mixed-race person my mother is Korean and my dad is African-American they were really cognizant that me establishing a firm identity is going to be tied to who I am as a person and how I live in the world. And they, they especially felt that bringing a mixed race child into the world, that they had to create a foundation that I was comfortable in as a mixed race person. I really thank my parents because I know a lot of other mixed race people that didn't have parents. Um, for example, I was born in Korea and my parents intentionally moved to the States because they thought it would be a better life for me. They could have moved everywhere, but they actually did the research and found the cities in America that had the most mixed race people in the country. And they picked the Northwest in the Seattle Tacoma area for that reason. My mother, my, and also they had to look at where was a large Korean population because my mother didn't really speak English and even throughout her whole entire life, she didn't really try to learn very much of it. Um, it was interesting when I got married and watching my mother and my husband and kind of having to translate between the two of them. 
but I, growing up in the, especially in the Seattle Tacoma area, it has a very large Korean population. And it has a very strong, at the time when I was growing up in the 80s, a very strong black middle class. And what I meant by that is, I assumed that there was going to be a black mayor because Norm Rice was the mayor. I assumed there could be an Asian governor because Gary Locke was governor. So I grew up in an era where one, people of color were in positions of power and two, where everybody around me was mixed race. So I didn't have to choose. I also have to point out that I'm of two um, people of color, which also is different. I'm not of of not mixed with black and white, for example. And my parents both said, okay, you're gonna learn Korean. Okay, you're gonna learn about black culture. You're gonna learn both of these cultures so that when you step into them, you are comfortable at any given time. So my parents were really cognizant of raising me in both communities. My dad spoke Korean. So it wasn't like my dad would step into that community and not speak. I went to Korean school on Saturdays. I also went to both a Korean church and an African-American church. I was part of the Black Student Union, but yet my youth group was in Korean. So it was really that sort of nuance that really allowed me to establish my identity. And don't get me wrong, there were, there were bumps along the way where one community would be like, I'm not Korean enough, or one community said I'm not Black enough. But in the end, growing up in both those identities, I was able to find my path and really have both communities really accept me. And I decided that when I had kids, I would have my kids grow up in diversity. And diversity, not only racial diversity, but diversity of thinking, which is also really important thing to do, I feel as a parent. If everybody's just like you and everybody thinks just like you and is raised just like you, you don't grow as a person. So I'm always pushing my kids it was really a struggle in the beginning, especially with my oldest, my daughter, you know, um, especially grew up in a very white city like um, Portland. And everybody's like, it's the same like you were up in the Northwest. No, in the Seattle Tacoma area, we have actually the military, which actually changes it. And we had a lot of companies headquartered in that area. The military alone adds a whole different level of diversity, right? Is it Fort Lewis or something? Uh -huh. Fort Lewis was there, McCord Air Force Base, which are now combined, the Naval um, Academy, and it's a port city. You know, so it, and so that really changes it. So very early on, I had decided with both of my kids when they were little, I could really determine their friend group. And what I mean by that is really getting them to have a diverse group of friends. And to this day, I'm really happy that they all have, both of them have a diverse group of friends. And I think that when you do that with your children, and you don't shy away from conversations about race or class or gender, it allows children to be really comfortable in it. One of the very first things I did with my daughter is had the Bell Hooks book, Happy to be Nappy, so that she would always be comfortable with her hair as a black woman because I knew that was a part of her identity that would be questioned. And so I really wanted her to be comfortable in it. You know, with my son, I have those conversations around what public transportation looks like for him as a, about to be a black man, that there are all these things that yes, your sister can do, but your safety as, as a black boy growing up in Portland is gonna be different for you than it is for your sister. 
and same and and my kids haven't necessarily gone to the same schools you know they have very different educational needs and so i treat them each as individuals as well but you're very very right um, identity is an important component of who i am and in our emerging leaders work i want all our young people to feel really comfortable in their identity and there are parts of our identity that are really positive and wonderful, but there are also stereotypes, especially as, as people that come with our identity and how do we break those stereotypes, whether they're good or bad, and really having, um, especially our young people of color be comfortable in their identity. Because when you go into the working world, the imposter syndrome, no matter how confident you are, will always come up. And even for me, it came up early in my career. Am I good enough to do this work? You know, yeah, maybe it is. I, I got this job because I'm a person of color. No, no, no. So you have to constantly, that, that solidifying your identity and your roots are so important to who you are as a person. Yeah, and I think some of the message that we try and get across, and I know I've heard you get this message across is, um, in the corporate world, dominant culture expects, which is especially in Portland, it's white culture, expects um, professionals of color to adapt to it. And rarely do leaders like myself that look like me um, begin to adapt to uh, other cultures, you know, you know, whether it be Asian American culture, African American culture, things like that in the workplace. It's just expected to always be, you know, conformed to basically my unspoken norm. Um, and that, so I think there's this balance that I've heard you talk about of like, only, you know, being able to live within that world, but also being really comfortable with what your identity is and not necessarily, um, you know, code switch at every opportunity. So it's, there's a, there's a tension in, in how you own your own identity, but also, you know, sometimes you, code switching is, you know, kind of required for certain corporate cultures. And mm -hmm. I don't know, it's, it's always a, a balancing act, I would imagine. It is. I remember once in my early 20s and um, having an immigrant parent is, is, and you are the primary caregiver of that immigrant parent is a very complex world for, for the young person. My mother didn't read or write in English. So I'll take it. For example, when she had to have a healthcare appointment, I had to rearrange my whole entire schedule to take her. She could not go on her own. Um, when it came to any kind of doing taxes, I had to do her taxes and my taxes. And I remember people at work saying, oh, I feel so bad for you that you have to do all these things for your mother. And for me, I was offended by that. I'm like, why would you feel sorry for me? She's my mother, you know, because in Korean culture, you were raised that 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 is just part of who you are. It's not a, a good or a bad. It, it's more like that is what is. It's just, and I'm, and you know, and it's interesting because when I would go to Korea, that would, that would never be a, a thing that anybody would think would be bad. It would be like, yeah, that's your job. You know, you're supposed to take care of your parents. You're supposed to do all those things. And it was always an, it, that interesting balance of, especially as a person of color and having an immigrant parent, um, 
of, of that balance of making sure I'm taking care of my family and at the same time being able to perform my job duties in the workplace. And one example where imposter syndrome even came up for me was when my mother had breast cancer. Nobody knew except for one person. You would have never known. And that's really the, um, the side of me that was trying to overcompensate because I would have to take her to her chemo appointments and all that. And I didn't want anybody to feel bad for me or think that I was doing less than what I was doing. And it wasn't until my mother was through it that people learned that I was doing my job and taking care of my mother at the same time. People were actually stunned. Mm-hmm. And I, what I should have done, which I would, I would change is let people know because there's nothing wrong with that. And I think one thing I have worked really hard in, Ryan, is showing vulnerability in the workplace. I'm not very good at it. And I think it's really important for this younger generation to not feel like they have to carry everything on their shoulders mm-hmm. and that life is messy and you, and perfection is not what we should attain in, in the, in the workplace. And that's something that really took me years to, to get to, because when you come from an immigrant parent and my dad grew up in a very, very poor part of Philadelphia, success was all about where you went to school, what kind of job you had, all of those things, those, that pressure of, of not failing, especially when you were the hope for your family, because I am a first-generation college student myself. And so that pressure uh, have, has you create a wall so that you're not vulnerable because you have this pressure. And I don't want other, I don't want the next generation of first-generation Um, college students and professionals to fill that. I think that vulnerability is an important part uh, of your, of who you are and how you come into the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's fascinating to me about this conversation around identity is a lot of the most examples that you're using is family, like in the, the family is so foundational. And so I'm going to transition here. I actually recently, um, did two podcast interviews, one with my mom who's an entrepreneur and my dad who also is, and and we kind of delved into that through a different lens, if you will. But um, but I want to go back to the beginning, back to when you were a little girl. You mentioned that you were born in South Korea. Um, did uh, did you move to when you were really young to the Seattle Tacoma area, or like, and and when you I guess. Let's pick up from when you were kind of eight years old um, and the types of activities that you were into and if you have siblings and yeah, just tell us about what it was like way, way back then. So first, I'm an only child of older parents and this is where racism really comes into play. My parents struggled to have me because they were a mixed race couple in the United States, adoption was not an option for them. They were they were turned down quite a few times because they were mixed race. So I definitely um, realized I'm not that far out as far as the loving case. You know, my um, parents both had to deal with that um, as a mixed race couple. But I remember um, coming from Korea, um, not really looking Korean or not really looking African-American and being in my elementary lunchroom. And I came with my 
And I, to this day, I still eat pretty much a Korean diet. And I remember sitting there at lunch and everybody staring at my food of my little bento box with seaweed and rice. And in Korean, we have a thing called ponchons, which are side dishes and all my little side dishes. And I remember being made fun of. And I was just like, why are, why are these kids making fun of me? And all I could think about was, one, it hurt my feelings, but I, and I went home to tell my mother. But at that time, my English, my English was okay. It wasn't the best because I learned Korean first and then English second. And um, I just remember, mom, what do I do? And my mom was like, you either can conform to what they think your standards are in Korean, she told me, or you, you can show them a new way of thinking and a new way of eating. And so I said, well, what do you want me to do, mom? And she was like, that's up to you. And my parents were really those kind of people not telling me I had to do things a certain way, but watching me to see how I would respond. And I remember going back and I continued to have my lunch and I, and I would try the peanut butter and jelly sandwich or the chips and I would start sharing my food. But about six months in was into that year, students really started to accept my food and be willing to eat it. But that was a real nuance component. I school um, complex in the sense of I realized that brown people like me uh, were not given a fair shot in the educational system. They would allow one of us to shine. That's the one thing I really realized when I looked around and I would talk to kids in the neighborhood. I noticed that a lot of the brown kids or the kids that didn't speak English were in the remedial classes. A lot of the white kids in the neighborhood went to these elite private schools or were in the honors classes or whatever. And I noticed that all throughout my whole entire educational career. And I had decided that if I ever had say, I would be on the side to change that. And um, so that's one reason I think education is so, so important because in the, especially in the U.S., your education can really determine where you're going to go long-term. So if you're, I really realized, um, I tell people sit in an ESL class and you can really see the difference. You know, to this day, homonyms, you know, made and made, and I just, I, I don't, I still don't understand them, but really showed me that if, if I am going to succeed, I need to be in those classes over there. And they were the honors classes across the hall. You know, I needed to get out of these ESL classes and go over there. Otherwise, that I had figured out really early on in my educational career. But a lot of people don't figure that out. And it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Is one of the things I've really learned. And I think uh, the world, it works the same way. Did your, I, I know in a, a lot of previous um uh, podcast interviews I've done with folks, their parents really advocated for them to, when they were kind of put in the remedial classes, either mom or dad would step in. Did that happen with you? Well, ESL, yes, especially with my father. My mother didn't read or write English. And, you know, to this day, I credit, I find her utterly, I mean, just amazing. So my dad died when I was 15. And so my mother had to figure out how to take this kid in a country which she didn't really identify with, nor did she really speak the language well, nor could she even read in it and keep her promise to her husband of getting me to college. And I just remember my mom, I was a sophomore and just sitting in the dark, talking to herself in Korean, 
how am I going to make this happen? And I remember like just a week later, she just went into this different mode. And I don't know, but she, my principal pulled me aside at one day and said, well, I talked to your mother. And I was like, that might have been interesting. You don't speak Korean. She doesn't speak English. And she said, your mother asked me what the grading system meant. Because my mother, my dad took care of all of my educational needs in the U.S. And that was their agreement. And all she knew was that the letter A was all she needed me to get. <laughs> and why that story is important is I um, ran track. And my and we were going to um, districts, and my track coach said, um, "I hear that your mom's not going to let you um, do the four by one hundred relay." I was like, "Yeah," and he's like, "She really isn't going to let you do that because you have a minus after the A, you know." And I go, "Yes," and he goes, "Does she realize that doesn't make any kind of sense?" She, I, and I tried to explain to him, and it it, it really was so confusing to him that in A minus, I had to pull an A minus to an A in this class in order to run. And I was explaining to my mom doesn't really understand this educational system. I said, all she knew from the principal is that I had to get this certain letter and that there couldn't be any minuses behind this letter. And so for her, she was like, you wanna, you wanna run? Then you gotta pull this grade up. And it was really hard to explain to my teammates um, I'm sorry, I can't run because I have an A minus, but it really paid off. Uh, my mom staying on me, um, and and she guilted me into college. I want to be really, really clear. I did not want to go to college. Why not? Me into it because because you're good at school. Yeah, because um, I was pretty burnt out, and I I really thought that working would be the best option, and. And I didn't, I didn't see people like me graduating from college and being successful. What I saw with a lot of people like me were people starting University of Washington or starting Seattle Community College or, but not finishing and then leaving with all this debt. And I was like, that's not going to be me. And thank God for a great guidance college counselor who helped me get an amazing package to read where I didn't have to worry about being in debt. And, you know, and I, and I, and if I had to do it over again, I would have gone to college. I'm happy that my mom guilted me into going to college. And, and what I mean by guilt is I call it Asian guilt, talking about all the sacrifices she made for me to come to this country. I mean, she pulled out all the stops <laughs> and I was like, fine, I'll go, <laughs> you know? Sometimes guilt works. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, it does. So you had you ever, so Reed College, I think, is most famously known as the place where Steve Jobs went and took calligraphy class and dropped out. But um, it's where like super, super smart people who it tends to be pretty liberal, like extremely liberal. Um, but had you even ever heard of Reed when you were in Seattle, Tacoma area? No. So I took the PSATs as a junior and I did really well. And all of a sudden, all these colleges I had never heard of would send mail. At first, you know, my mother just read or write English. She wrote them in the trash. And you also got phone calls, and I had to call my mom a sentence in English 
which is like Felicia no home. That's what we got. But the part that she didn't really understand was how to use our voicemail system. And so occasionally she would pick it up and college people would call and she would say, Felicia no home and just hang up. She wouldn't wait for the response because she didn't see the point in it because she wouldn't understand what they said anyway. And so I, to this day, I wonder, I wonder if she, who she did that to. But that was how I found out about Reed. And um, they um, let me come down. They encouraged me to visit. They have these fly-in programs, but because I live so close, they brought me down by train. And what people said, well, what made you go to Reed? And for me, I was like, if I'm going to go to college, the academic challenge was something that I was like, well, I do want that. I like the fact that you had to write a thesis. Um, I liked the size of it because it was really super small. But most importantly, the most important thing was I really wanted to go out of state, be, be close enough to take care of my mother. Um, and so my whole entire freshman year, I went home every single weekend to take care of my mother. So that, that to me was, was the deciding factor, was close enough um, to home, but yet far enough away for me to have a different experience. Were all of your other peers partying on the weekends? I mean, were you one of the few people who left on the weekends? Yes, I, I was. And um, it was, it was, it was, uh, the reason I lasted through my freshman year of, of Reed was um, because of my mentors and my advisor. I had never been around that much wealth. Um, my freshman roommate came from a lot of money. My sophomore roommate came from a lot of money and when i mean by money i mean like one of my friends her grandfather founded union pacific railroad so i just i had never seen that you know that level of of what i call wealth that you hadn't earned mm. that you were just born into and i was amazed at how many readies were born into money like going to these these um, private high schools that cost as much as read before they even got to read, you know, boarding schools there. It was very common for me to hear. Yeah. I went to this boarding school or I went to that boarding school. It wasn't just private school, but elite boarding schools like Andover and Choate. And, you know, I mean, just, geez, I was like, wow. And I definitely saw the, the level of academic, caliber that those schools produced as well. So you could really see the educational inequality. And um, I was like my, I was amazed at how many of them didn't understand the level of wealth they had. And I'll give you an example. On my floor freshman year, there was a girl that just didn't feel like doing laundry. So she would just buy herself new clothes. Like like, every month? She would just buy clothes and then she would give away the other clothes. And I just thought it was, we had to do this backpacking trip for Reed for one of our orientation, you know, for the middle-class kids and for the low-income kids, we would go to the Goodwill or whatever to get stuff. The rich kids would just go to REI and just buy it outright, even though they were only going to use it once, you know, whether it was a tent or a sleeping bag or just that level Mm-hmm. Uh, the level of wealth on campus was um, unbelievable. But the thing I really admired that it didn't matter based off of income or race, or whatever, was you're right, the intellectual rigor uh, of students. That stu- the students there really w- wanted to learn, and the students that really didn't dropped out. 
Reed has a very, very, when I was going there, had an extremely high dropout rate. I started my freshman year with close to 400, and I ended my senior year with less than 200. Wow. That's a 50% dropout rate. And back then, Reed was really proud of that. I felt like you, you guys are the, the, the few that made it through and blah, 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 and you have your degrees. And I was thinking, I know it's not like that now. They really work to work on um, retention now. But back then, like, that was a big deal to graduate. Now they really spend a lot more trying to keep students there. Yeah. So I didn't think that was a great number at all. Yeah, and you you started getting involved in the community in um, college. I mean, you were in the Black Student Union and the Asian Student Union, and um, you uh, there was a multicultural center that you were mm-hmm. helping to run. And um, mm-hmm. is that like, did you kind of is that where it all started? Where this very uh, almost like a social entrepreneur, you know, mindset kind of started in college? No, it started um, back home because um, family members owned grocery stores, dry cleaners. Um, and so it started restaurants, so including my own family. And so it started way back then that in, in order to be successful in life, you had to have, you had to define yourself. And watching, especially on my mother's side, these Koreans come to this country with nothing and, and build. I mean, I, I, that's where I really learned hard work does pay off. And they're, you're going to have a lot of challenges along the way. And the only way that, that you are going to be able to get through it is, is by putting skin in the game. So I learned early on how to do that. The other thing is, if you want change to occur, you can't sit back and complain about it. Like there, in a clear example I can give you is a lot of Koreans couldn't get bank loans. They just couldn't get them. And so the people in the Korean community would come together and pull their money together to help businesses open. So they didn't say, oh, I can't get a bank loan, we're done. They would find other ways to make those things happen. When I came to, to read, I realized there wasn't a lot of focal point in um, providing supports for communities of color and so I said I could just sit there and complain about it or I could work with uh, the president and there was two things I had decided when I left Reed that I wanted to do one I was um, I really wanted there to be a multicultural center uh, um, affinity groups which I helped start those things but I also wanted Reed to really hold itself accountable by hiring tenured faculty of color and so I really worked on that as well with President Koblik, who I thought was a pretty amazing president, um, you know. And so um, that, those were my legacies that I really felt like that I was able to help contribute to because I wanted the next generation to have a better experience than I did. And, I, and that's something I passed on to my children, that if you see something that isn't right, just don't sit back there and not do anything and complain about it. What can you do to help with those changes? Whether you experience the positive changes yourself or not, change can help. I mean, I think all those people that, that the women that helped me get a right to vote as a woman, the civil rights movement that allowed me to be in you know, classrooms with other people. I mean, like those are things those people did, not necessarily for themselves, but for the next generation. And so that's the legacy I really wanted to leave at my alma mater. Yeah, well, that's you had some amazing successes there on that front. I, 
I always ask this question, but in that formative time frame of maybe even going all the way back to from 15 year old years old to you know right after college, you know, there's often a pretty formational life moment that happens, um, whether it's a huge obstacle or something that creates a lot of independence. Um, was you mentioned that your father passed it when you were 15, but it was what would what would be kind of one of those major life moments that that you felt like was a big obstacle that you had to overcome? I think losing my father because I had to learn how to do taxes, I had to learn how to run our household, I had to learn how to keep my grade up and work and take care of my mother. Um, I think another um, big thing that I think is really, really important is mentorship. I, I, I had a wonderful team around me in, in high school to help me graduate from high school and I had a wonderful support system around me for college. I had this wonderful advisor named Ray Kierstead and he, he has since passed and he was my advisor at Reed and he cared so personally for my well-being and he really put a lot of what I call his personal skin in the game when it came to my academics. And the other person that was really instrumental in, um, in my formation was a man named um, Richard Dent. And he was the head of financial aid for Reed. And he really pushed on me, you have a golden opportunity here. What are the supports and networks you need that I can make sure that you graduate? You know, and he was really clear with me. He's like, young people of color in this university, yeah, we can get them to start, but we can get very few of them to graduate. So what is it that you are going to need? And then last, when I actually graduated, I had one of my most wonderful mentors was this man named Ernie Bonahati. Ernie Bonahati was also a partner at Stoll Reeves. And all throughout um, my time at Reed, he had me work there. Um, he also checked in on me. He also uh, made sure that I understood what I call the white world. Because even though I went to Reed and even though I grew up in the Northwest where there are lots of white people, I actually didn't spend a lot of time with white people. And so he really helped me understand that. Another great mentor was this man named Bill Nato. And he, those two really, during my time actually at Reed, were um, instrumental in, in my formative years, getting me to really understand what my life is going to look like in the working world. And having this um, Jewish man and this Japanese man who both graduated from Reed give me the stark, harsh reality, but at the same time telling me how they had made changes and how in the business world, but to really understand what dominant culture was, I think um, really helped form and shape me um, to be able to one, to understand the world I'm working in, but also at the same time, how to help make the changes in it. And I am forever grateful, especially to those two people. Yeah. Well, there, those are some powerhouse names you mentioned so, and mentors. So that's... Uh... And I couldn't have had that if I didn't go to read, right? Yeah. So access, and that's one of the reason I spend so much time back to our original thing is access. I would have never had access to Erna Bonahati or Bill Nadel if I didn't go to read. 
right? Because how else am I going to meet them? And that's why all I tell every, everybody, life is about choices and the choices you make lead to certain outcomes. Because I chose to go to read, I have a very different life than if I went to University of Washington. The access to the trustees, the access to the access to having this amazing advisor is possible because I went to school of 1200 kids or 1300, whatever the number is, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I, I want people to know, I can say it's all on me, but part of it's actually luck. That's one reason I like um, Judge Sonia Sotomayor's book on her autobiography. She is so right. And I don't know if you've ever read it, but she really talks about how, why she is a Supreme Court judge is certain life opportunities happen to her. And then she talks about her cousin who was smarter than her and all these things, but those life opportunities weren't placed in front of the cousin. So I think that, that nuance of, of where you interconnect with opportunity in your life is really important as well. That's cool. It's a cool thought process. Um, so you graduated from Reed and then almost is like you became an executive director right away. It seems like um, you were at Emergence Foundation and then you went on to be at Portland Housing Center for 19 years. And so I kind of want to understand how you got into leadership at such a young age. Usually it takes a while to build up to that. I was really um, blessed to be in a, a fellowship program at Portland State called Leadership Fellows. And it was funded by the David and Lucille Packard um, Foundation. And there are um, quite a few of my um, fellow nonprofit leaders that were in there with me. Um, Lee Potaw, um, Linda Castillo, to um, Adrian Livingston, to just to um, name a few, and um, Amina Anderson, who's the founder of the Black United Fund. There was quite a few um, people that were part of what we had a cohort model and there i forget how many cohorts were there were total but suzanne feeney who was running who was a professor at portland state said if we really want to have more nonprofit leaders of color then we need to to create this program where one we build them as leaders and we provide them cohorts and supports and build them their own networks. And I really, I was in there for, for two years and everybody went there through that for two years and you really um, learned a lot. So it's connected to philanthropy. It was connected to higher ed. It was connected to nonprofit leadership. And the way it works is that the, the first cohort were all executive directors and of, of the major nonprofits in, in town. And then, um, and I think, um, uh, who else was in it? And then after that, they would nominate what they call middle management because it's part of it was having that founding group and then middle management was next. And then from there, those were the people that would be groomed to go into executive leadership. And what's been really interesting is, is the program is no longer in existence. There is a sort of version of it through coalitions of communities of color, but it's amazing at how many of us today are executive directors from that original program. So that's, what I would say of why I was able to um, rise in leadership was being part of the, that cohort model and having Portland State invest in me and having David and Lucille Packard Foundation invest in me 
And being part of leadership fellows, you have a, a group of colleagues for the, the rest of your life that you can call on that experiences very, very unique experience with you. And we were all for the most part in our early twenties. Mm. So it was almost like, um, even my husband was part of it. I met my husband through it. Okay. And so it, it, it really has shaped a lot of, um, young people of color who now are no longer young, but, um, it, it's, 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 it's really interesting. That's cool. And so, um, you were, I think it's really rare to find someone in this day and age to be leading a nonprofit for 19 years. Um, can you talk a little bit about your time at the, um, at the Portland Housing Center and, and what kept you in it for that long? And then you ultimately came over to, um, lead, you know, the emerging leaders and, and be a exec leader at the contingent after that. But, um, you know, yeah. How, how, how did you stay loyal for so long? That's just really rare in, in the nonprofit world and really the, the whole business world. Well, in my early careers, I was, I was, um, before even Emergence Foundation, I was, I would try something and it'd be like, okay, after a year or two, I'd be like, okay, I'm done. And after Emergence Foundation, I had decided that I needed to go deeper into an issue area. And I decided that um, wherever God led me in that issue area, I would stay for as long as he called me there. And so I said, God, I either want to be in education, healthcare, or housing. And, you know, being at the housing center under the leadership of Peg Malloy, who, who was our founder, the reason I lasted 19 years is that her mentorship was very valuable. You know, she um, gave me the opportunities to grow as a professional leader. She um, also had a real heart and she still does to this day of of, of grooming leaders of color. That's really important to her and, and providing access points for leaders of color. Um, she also allowed me to really grow in my DEI work. Um, any professional opportunity I wanted, um, the board of directors and, and PEG would allow me to do. But most importantly, I stayed in it long-term because housing is such a complex issue that very few people of color are in leadership, but the majority of people served are not. Like, so what I mean by that is most of our homelessness, our affordable housing issues, all of those people of color are overrepresented. But if you look at executive leadership and you look at management of the nonprofits or you look in government or, or banks, there are hardly any people of color at the top. Very, very few. And people ask me, well, why did I leave the housing center to go work for uh, emerging leaders and for the contingent? It's because for the last five years of my career, I complained about it. I said, you know, we don't have enough people of color. I'm tired of always being the only one at this table at meeting after meeting. And what I told you earlier, Ryan, about I have to practice what I preach, I realized that no longer in affordable housing could I create that systems change? Mm -hmm. I needed to go outside and I needed to build the talent in the pipeline to address these 
issue areas around education, healthcare, housing. And the only way I could do it was through a program like Emerging Leaders, is that one of the things that we have a saying, which I assume comes from you or Ben, is that by 2040, we want the leadership to reflect what it looks like in our city. But we're not going to be able to do it if we don't work on it. And that's, that's the main reason I came over to Emerging Leaders. If I want leaders of color in housing, if I want leaders of color in banking, if I want leaders of color heading up creative agencies, it's not magically going to happen. And higher ed is actually not built for that by itself. It needs a partner and a collaborator. So I felt like it was a God moment when you and Sue and Ben really approached me about this. I was like, God, I hear you. I'm going to make this move. And I think that's really important because I really thought I was going to retire out of affordable housing because I, I hadn't heard that, um, that voice that told me it was moving. And I was so fulfilled, Ryan, and being able to touch healthcare and education through my board service, you know, through my consulting work and all those other ways that I was able to still um, be able to do the other work. And, but once this opportunity was placed in front of me, I was just like, okay, I hear you. And that's why I was so strategic in my thinking with you and Sue, because I've been literally working on this for five years within just a specific industry. And the question was like, it's sort of, it's that question saying, well, the talent isn't there. And, and you are one to really counter that. Yes, the talent is there. You just don't make the effort to find it. Yeah. And so emerging leaders, not only it takes it one step further, here is a talent for you to access. So there's no excuse for you. Yeah. And so I think that, that, that being able to change leadership at the top can only happen. It got a little blurred out the sound in the last part of that. Um, do you want to right there? So I was saying that um, in order for leadership to change at the top of the and nonprofit and in government is that we have to feed the pipeline intentionally. And that's what emerging leaders does. And that's why I left. We can feed the pipeline intentionally with young leaders of color. That was me when I was in my 20s. If I didn't have the mentorship and the guidance by amazing people along the way, um, that I wouldn't be where I am today, right? Yeah. I mean, I think Peg Malloy pretty regularly because she was really instrumental in my mentorship in, in housing like people didn't see all of the wonderful guidance and mentorship and pushing me as a, as a leader that she did and forever I will be grateful to her yeah. and also to all of our board members you know just like with you and Sue I'm really grateful to you guys as well for the same reason and I'm grateful to you especially for having the courage to create emerging leaders. I mean, it, it takes a lot and, so, I, and I feel like it's a blessing. Yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of what, where our core focus has been and will continue to be, but we're expanding on that um, is, you know, young people in college and coming right out of college and really strengthening this alumni network um, in, who have participated in the emerging leaders internship piece or the mentoring piece and, and so on. But um, as we look towards 2040 and we look at really um, 
supporting that these pathways uh, to leadership for you know professionals of color from college to the C-suite. Um, what you know? What do you see on the horizon next for emerging leaders? Um, next is we've really honed in on um, this internship model that I think is really successful, and we're now hitting our next evolution, which is. Um, year five is really focusing on our young people that are currently working in their roles and developing them as leaders. Our, our mission is going to expand, which it had before I joined, around how do we work with our emerging leaders, alumni network, our current leaders out there working. Because when I think back in my own career, some of the most isolating times for me was when I entered leadership. It felt so isolating and alone. And as a person of color, not having, not always having that sounding board, um, not having that support network. I mean, um, at times I wanna make sure that as our young leaders are entering their next stages, being promoted, that we are building their network. But the other most important thing that um, we need to do is close the racial wealth gap. Our young people will be successful when one, they are debt free, two, they have savings, and, and three, they start building wealth. That means buying homes, having six months reserves, doing all those things. And the pandemic is really showing how people of color especially have no safety net. Mm. And so what I really see our work in is making, I realize emerging leaders is the safety net for a lot of our young people. And so let's make that safety net strong by helping um, develop them in their personal um, professional development, but also in their personal development. How many of our young people are, are accessing you know, their 401ks. How many of our young people have adequate health care? How many of our young people know when to ask for a raise? How many of our young people know when is it time to leave my current company and take the promotion over there? Those are the, the challenges that face us moving forward. Because in order to make systematic change, we have to work with our young people coming out of high school into our colleges and universities, all of them, and really pretty much staying with them from 17 to about 35. Mm -hmm. Those are, so really expanding our scope to be able to really groom the next generation to really take over for us, yeah. current leaders. So my last question is this notion that um, a kind of a defining life moment that happened earlier in our lives um, is it makes it so that it's not a surprise to us that we are as entrepreneurs and for you in this successful place running a program like Emerging Leaders and an executive on the contingent which does even more work in the community um, that is having this like really really positive impact that something earlier happened in your life that um, it's not a surprise to where you are now. So I don't know if that's, if your answer is expanding on what you talked about earlier uh, with Reed or with, you know, something that happened in your family or, or something like that. But I, it, it's always, I always like to ask this question because um, there's, there's, always something that you know a struggle or something that was like really amazing with independence or um 
that kind of comes to light with this question. So I was just wondering if, if you could expand on it. I think um, what really solidified it um, that I knew I was going to um, do great things in life that I wasn't just going to sit by idle was I remember in high school, was it high school or middle school or something like that, we had to do a field trip. And at that time, um, we were meeting with like leaders of color politicians like Norm Rice, Governor Locke, and um, who, who wasn't governor at that time. But I remember listening to them and hearing their stories and they said, shatter expectations that, that nobody's going to give you anything. They talked about the hard road, but that if you didn't believe in yourself, then nobody else was. And, and they made us look at each other and they said, we intentionally picked you young people in this room to meet with and have this because we think you have that potential. We think you have the potential to lead. We think you have the potential to make a difference. It is your choice whether you choose to do it or not. And it was, it was just amazing. It was through this program called Push Excel. And it was, which was at that time, our version of like what I call SCI or something like that. And just having to see that and then looking around at my peers and going, wow, they think that of us? Really? Really um, put put this light bulb in my head of like, yeah, they're right. We can do these things and, and it is possible. And I, I'm really a firm believer that those moments in life that adults don't think are going to be a big deal can be so meaningful for young people. When adults tell young people, one, you matter, two, you're special, three, you have potential, four, you can accomplish great things. That That's a game changer. And and that's one reason I had decided that if I ever became successful, I wouldn't forget that and that I would always mentor and, and make the next generation realize that too. And so, you know, and that's why I know you on the board of Friends of Children. That's one reason I love Friends of Children for that exact reason. That's what they do one-on-one -on -one with young people, you know, and I, I think it's really important. So that, that, I call it my friends of the children moment. That was my friends of the children moment, you know, where, where an adult said, you know, you, you, it was almost like they were saying, you have an obligation to yourself and to your community to be something. Don't waste it. Mm -hmm. You know, powerful, super yeah. powerful. Uh, thanks so much for sharing. And I, I knew I'd learn a bunch from you today and it, it happened. So I so appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Felicia. Oh, thank you. This was, thank you. Thank you, Ryan, for having these. You know, I really, really appreciate it. And I appreciate being able to, to do what I call this change making work with you. Cause that's what we're, it's long and it doesn't have an ending. And we just like me, you choose to be in it to make a difference. You don't have to, but you choose to. And so for that, I'm eternally grateful to you and to everybody else in this well, cause and affect family. Well, hopefully all of our listeners will feel the love and, uh, yeah, and learn uh, one or two new things about um, you shared a bunch of really cool perspectives. So thanks again and have an awesome day. You too. All right, cheers. Cheers.